0: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
1: The Athletic. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, now's the time with our best offer ever. Sign up today and you'll pay just £1 a month for the next six months, giving you unrivaled insight and analysis of everything Euro 2020 and taking you well into the new Premier League Season 2. The Athletic is the only place you can read pieces by award-winning writers like Michael Cox, Rafa Honigstein, Amy Lawrence and Daniel Taylor. And when you subscribe, you'll also get ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts from across its audio network. Head to theathletic.com slash totally and become a subscriber today for six quid until the end of the year. That's theathletic.com slash
2: totally.
3: Good afternoon, passengers.
4: Mm. Sevilla, Amsterdam, Glasgow, München
1: Sankt Petersburg,
3: oh, Bucharest,
4: Budapest, Copenhagen,
3: Roma, London.
5: <laughs> <laughs> one game to go at Euro 2020, and it's the one we've all been waiting for: Sunday at Wembley, the biggest Anglo-Italian Cup final since Genoa Port Vale, probably. Will football finally come home? Will it get its keys in the lock, hear the Neil Diamond, see the weather and decide to do one instead? We preview the action, plus we review the games, the goals, the good bits of this tournament so far and finish off with some frankly shocking opinions about one of the all-time great players and great goals of the past. It's totally the Euros in association with Paddy Power. Hello, listener. Thank you so much for joining us. It's Friday, the 9th of July, or possibly Saturday, the 10th. I don't know, but it is the penultimate Totally Show of these Euros. And with us, what a lineup. We've got Duncan Alexander. Hello, Duncan. Hello, James. Also, Tom Williams. Tom. Hello, James. Michael Cox is here with us. Hi, James. And also, James Horncastle. All right, horn dog. Hello. Woof. We're all here together agog for Sunday night's. Big game. Michael, have you got big plans for this?
3: Uh, yes, I am going along. So, yes, big Oh, that would be
5: amazing. You're going to be at ground zero for football history.
3: Yeah, well, at ground level, actually, as well. My ticket is, I think, row seven or something, which isn't, uh, isn't my preferred viewing angle, I must say, but right. should be a great occasion. OK,
5: what about you, Tom and Duncan? Are you, uh, Which side of the clash are you favouring, ITV or BBC?
6: It's got to be BBC.
5: Duncan's not sure, though, are you, Duncan?
7: Well, I think the ITV pre-match and halftime stuff's been excellent. I think Ian Wright, Emma Hayes, um, you know, a bit of Roy Keane. It's been, it's been good. But, yeah, right. I mean, I have got buttons on controllers that allow me to switch back and forth, so maybe that will happen. Who okay. knows?
5: All right. You're not excited by um, the in-game ITV offering. It's so much cheaper than dropping acid and, and potentially <laughs> safe, although I don't know. <laughs> Anyway, all right, well, um, hosts in the final is very exciting, but a lot of people waving around statistics that show that it doesn't always work out that well. Is that something that concerns you, Michael?
3: Uh, What statistics do you mean?
5: Well, the fact that when the hosts, France, were in the final in 2016, Mm. they were shocked. There was a bit of an upset. And when the hosts were in the final the time before that of the Euros in 2004, Portugal that didn't work out too well for them either. Just you know, a lot of people saying, you know, it's, it's England because it's, it's at home. It hasn't worked out that way in the past.
3: Yeah, I hadn't considered that angle, I must say. Um, oh, right. Whether that plays any role this weekend, I don't know. But, I mean, we know that home advantage is a thing, is a factor. And I, I think it does slightly tilt the balance towards England, despite those statistics. If this game was in Rome, I think Italy would be favourites. I think in London, England just about, Looking at the odds, England just about considered favourites. So, yeah, it right. should be a factor.
5: Well, just so we understand the magnitude of what's going to be decided on Sunday, it's not just a game, it's one of two starkly different future timelines that we're going to be embarking on. Italy win, Jorginho surely will be Ballon d'Or, Mancini will join PSG, Kane will have to stay at Spurs, and basically the world will continue to turn, with some English fans maybe even secretly comforted by the team, ultimately just kind of maintaining their wistful loser trademark brand if England win though holy cow I mean you get a bank holiday first of all Maguire Ballon d'Or Pretty Patel on the whole again tribute single popular quiz show they think it's all over renamed go out and do whatever you want but please follow the rules or I'll be in trouble after another iconic piece of conversation (laughs) (laughs) what what else happens if England win I mean it's it's just can we even
7: There'll be a small boost to the economy because all those England shirts that the government have bought are in photos for Twitter, um, <laughs> the 28 days where you can return an item will have passed, so they'll actually have bought them rather than just cashing them back, so that's that's good, so it's one to look forward to.
5: All right,
1: well, which is it going to be? Let's get our preview on. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. All right,
5: James Tonkers, we've not heard from you yet. But England are facing Italy on Sunday and who is better placed to tell us about this game than you? First of all, Wembley, iconic
2: for Italians, no? It is. It's a mythical place. I think just the name carries so much weight outside of of this island. Uh, It doesn't really matter that the stadium's changed. It's completely different and in many respects looks like a lot of other uh, modern stadiums, really. But Certainly, uh, Italy have had some famous nights there. Uh, you were probably there, James, in what, the 90s when Gianfranco Gen- Zola scored that yes. wonderful kind of volley.
7: <laughs> <laughs>
5: Obviously, Capello, of course. The Capello. First, yeah. um,
2: Pazzini. Cianfranco Pazzini christening the place with a, with a hat-trick. Uh, as well, and, and of course, it's it's uh, it's brought them good luck so far in this competition because they they have won, albeit in extra time, on both their visits. Chiesa has scored in both those games against Austria and, and Spain, so uh, it's certainly a place that he seems to enjoy playing at. But I think one of the interesting things, speaking to some Italian colleagues uh, uh, on Thursday morning, they went along to the the England Denmark game, was the contrast between. What was already a kind of incredible atmosphere for the Italy-Spain semi-final, and then seeing what the England fans were like on Wednesday, and and how it just went up, uh, not just another notch, but to an entire new dimension with that noise, with that level of support. You know, as you know, Italians tend to have a real reverence for for the English game. Mm. Um, but I think that was the English game dialed up to pff, wow uh, 11. <laughs> eleven, yeah. Let's say. Mm.
5: All right. Do you, is there a danger? I, I think it's going to be a huge boost. And I think everyone thinks that uh, for England. But is there is there a danger that this is seen as so much of a once of a lifetime opportunity for England, so much of a kind of Halley's Comet of a football occasion that if if things don't Get off on the right start. That the feeling of oh my god, this was our one chance, and we're blowing it with the fans. With whether that might be a factor.
2: Well, Italy like doing this. I mean, remember the World Cup in two thousand six, uh, that semi final against Germany in Dortmund, where mm-hmm. Germany had famously never lost, and yeah, you know, Italy were playing up against the Yellow Wall, and they seemed to really draw inspiration out of that. They weren't intimidated by it. The idea of actually. Bringing an end to that uh, was one of the motivating factors in, you know, what was one of the most kind of famous nights in in Italian football history. So I don't think they'll necessarily be be frightened by what they see at uh, at Wembley. And I think, as you were just mentioning then, this this sense of of expectation around England that they haven't had a better chance to win this competition. And again, uh, I get the feeling that Italy are being taken lightly i think people do view them through the prism of that second half against austria um second half against belgium the entire game against spain and and kind of forget that you know it's one thing for italy not to have the ball against spain but england don't have pedri danny olmo sergi busquets and Coque. um you know i would expect and again speaking to some people on Mancini's staff over the last 24 hours, they seem to think that they will be able to control the ball in this game and have the ball as opposed to England. And if they do, then that might we might see that the similar kind of atmosphere that we saw towards the end of the first half against Denmark, where it didn't go quiet, but certainly Denmark were able to, I don't know, temper some of the enthusiasm at
7: Wembley. We should probably point out that the kind of phenomenon of England having this incredible atmosphere at Wembley is... Relatively new. I mean, I would say England games historically have been, um, you know, have been generally quite poor atmospheres a lot of the time. And, and as James says, there they do can go quite. Quite quickly if you look back at the nineteen sixty six world Cup final it's obviously a different time in in how people support it, but it's very you know rattles and the occasional bursts of the saints are marching in or something um and even you're even United six <laughs> wasn't i don't think anyone looks back at united six and says, "Wow, what an atmosphere in the england germany semi final for instance um Really? Uh, that, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think that is part of the kind of law of, of Euro 96 in my experience. It was a good atmosphere because it was a sold out Wembley in a big game. But I don't, it wasn't this kind of like fevered post lockdown, sweet Caroline, people falling over tarpaulins thing, which is very much 2021, isn't it? So, right. um, and that's not to say it hasn't had an effect. I think it really has. But As James said a minute ago, I think if if Italy do get on top, I think the atmosphere could dissipate relatively quickly.
6: And, And Italy are the arch party poopers. That's the role they've played throughout their history as a national team. And I think what's been interesting about their evolution over the course of the tournament was that Pre-tournament, we spoke about you know this new, much more expansive Italy, and you know the, the kind of attacking football that Roberto Mancini's got them playing. But what we've seen in the last two games, notably you know the, the closing stages of the Austria game, but also to a slightly lesser extent the Spain game, is some of the old Italy. You know that Italy that takes such pride in its ability to defend leads, to see out games, to um, you know to to push things close to the line when it comes to time wasting and the dark arts and all that sort of thing. So I think if any you know, if any team uh, is is sort of well set up for spoiling uh, a potential coronation on home soil, uh, right. it's probably Italy.
5: Okay, dark hearts tick. Uh, but you, you speak there about it, Italian evolution, but there, there's also been a bit of a kind of devolution in the sense that with Spinazzola's exit, possibly coincidentally, or possibly because he's no longer there to kind of drive the team forward and bring all that kind of courage and, and vim to their to their play going forward, the team did seem to withdraw, to retreat in the face of Spanish pressure. And from an Italian perspective, I can absolutely imagine them seeing England come at them with the pace that that England has and just deciding, oh my goodness, we'd better get back and just kind of engage in some kind of trademark last-ditch defending.
2: Perhaps, um, but I do think Italy will control the ball in a way that they weren't able to against Spain. I think Spinazzola is a big loss, but he's someone that didn't play for them all that much through qualifying because... Yeah, you know, one of the blights of his career has been a series of injuries, uh, and Emerson was the one who started throughout Nations League, Europa League, and even World Cup qualifying. Even though he hasn't really been playing all that much for Chelsea, it's hard to re- replicate the dynamic that Spinazzola had with Insigne, and not only him but Verratti on that side as well. And I think Spinazzola has pace, particularly on the cover, to kind of help out Chiellini. When, for example, a team is breaking on 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 Italy, which I expect would happen with uh, with England with uh, Sterling uh, in particular. But the main problem, and Michael wrote about this, was Luis Enrique went with a strikerless system. Danny Olmo effectively played as another midfield player, so they could outnumber uh, Italy. I'm not sure England will do that. Um, I think England will still still play with Calvin Phillips and Declan Rice in midfield. Okay, Kane might come short, but. You know, I think there's a real opportunity for Italy to have the ball for long stages uh, of this game, and uh, you know they've shown more faces this Italy side than that dude on Brazos in, in Game of Thrones. Um, you know, they they can attack and they can defend like they did once upon a time, and they're a complete team really. So yeah, it's, it should be a fascinating final for that,
5: Michael. If you were advising Gareth Southgate who has adapted his lineup, I think, or his approach for every game so far. What would you tell him to do to best take advantage of, of opportunities against Italy?
3: I, um, it sounds like a contradiction, but I think an unchanged side is the best approach because I think actually England have got players in various positions who um, are well-suited to dealing with Italy's threat. I mean, the, the issue when you play Italy is they end up with a, a front five, with Emerson pushing forward. So you want someone on the right who's got the defensive discipline to track back and I think that's Saka. You need a right back who's happy moving inside with Insigne and Kyle Walker does that job well and I think you need a central midfielder who is capable of matching the physicality and the runs of Barella um, which I think Declan Rice is probably quite suited to a player who's played at centre back and then Jorginho as well is, is someone who I think needs to be pressed. I think we've seen In the Premier League, he's a brilliant player. But when he's closed down, he can be a little bit vulnerable. And you've got Mason Mount, who, of course, knows him from Chelsea. Um, So I think England's existing... Or the the side they played against Denmark is well-suited to this approach. I agree with James. I think Italy will control the ball. I'm not sure there's a combination of players England can select that means they will get the best of the midfield battle. I think Italy will dominate proceedings. But I, I wouldn't say that's necessarily bad for England. I would look at that and think Sterling's pace on the break... Saka's pace in, in past Emerson, who I really don't think is good defensively. Um, you're probably relying on Kane using his body well against Chiellini and Bonucci. That will be an interesting battle. Personally speaking, as, as someone who obviously wants England to win the competition, I'm, I, I would prefer to be playing Italy than Spain. I think Spain would have caused England more problems with their shape and their width and their drive. Um, but they wouldn't
2: have scored. That's the thing.
3: Well, that, that that might have come into things, you're right. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think either side will make any changes, actually. I think, I mean, is there even a debate for Italy? I think Chiesa's probably got that, that place locked down, hasn't he, now? And, well, there's yeah.
5: some doubt about his fitness, is that right, James?
3: No, I think he, he was cramping
2: up uh, towards the end of the game against uh, Spain. But then again, it felt like everybody was cramping up. Um, I know that they were tired. Uh, they obviously haven't stayed in England. They flew back. Uh, to Florence they got in at five o'clock in the morning Uh, I think they fly uh, again to England tomorrow uh, when this podcast comes out on the Saturday but I think yeah they played extra time twice uh, an extra time twice away from home as well not whether that means anything we'll we'll see but Mancini has used his squad you know quite well uh, not to the extreme that we saw in that final group stage game against Wales where he decided to give everybody and his kit man uh, a few minutes. Um, but I think on the whole, there's there's a sense with this Italy team that there's not too much of a drop-off um, when someone else comes in for for another player. Aside from, I think we feel that the drop-off between Emerson and Spinazzolo is maybe the biggest on the, on the team,
7: really. I mean... This tournament has been um, characterised by the use of substitutes in a lot of way, and you know if 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 this final ends up with its own Wikipedia page, really, which it will, because it's the final of the Euros, but an additional tab on it, um, it could be something to do with how substitutions are used. Because if it goes to extra time, there could be twelve subs that are used in this game, and Italy and England probably do have the, as James said, the the best array of, of talent across the whole squad. So, yeah, I mean, I think I wouldn't be too worried about the starting lineups because I think that a lot of players are going to have a a chance to play a big part in this game.
6: Just to go back to England's approach and how they'll set up, I think what's really encouraging uh, from England's perspective is uh, the form that Harry Kane showed in that Denmark game, uh, particularly his success in sort of dropping deep and linking the play, played that sublime pass through to Saka, in the build-up to the first England goal, putting that lovely cross uh, from the right that just eluded Raheem Sterling in the early stages. And for me, it felt like the first time... um, we'd really seen sort of early-season Tottenham Kane, where he's making and creating goals at the same time. And we saw the success that Spain had in playing a false nine in Dani Olmo, dropping deep and and giving uh, Spain numerical superiority in central midfield. I think when Kane plays like that, he could offer England something similar. And then when you've got Sterling and Saka or Sancho darting in from the flanks behind two Italy centre backs who aren't exactly renowned for their pace, it could be a really fruitful avenue for England.
5: So, is Kane actually, is he potentially a false nine but also a nine at the same time in the same game?
3: I think he is, and, and I think the key thing there is the Maratta goal. Maratta ended up playing the centre forward role and he perfected both sides of it, didn't he? Link play and then he went in behind to score the goal. So, if Harry Kane can do that, I'm sure England will be very happy.
5: A false, false nine, essentially. <laughs>
3: Yeah,
7: yeah. Something like that is a good, uh, good description. I'll use that one. Right. It feels like it might be the first ever big final where neither team wants the ball because I think they'll both be confident of, of, of their of what they're going to do if they can win the ball back quickly. I mean, Italy have scored three goals from high turnovers in this tournament, which is more than any other team. Um, and England, we see saw in games like the Scotland match when they have a lot of possession, they kind of can become a bit turgid. So, yeah, I think. Both teams, yeah, would probably prefer to cede to possession and then hit them on the break.
5: Scotland, the only team that's actually stopped England so far. What can Mancini learn from them, James?
7: I mean, I know that they were watching
2: all of England's games uh, yesterday. Um, so they'll have, they'll have picked up on, 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 on Scotland. Um, you know, I, I'm curious to know what Michael thinks about who's the better tactician between Southgate and Mancini, which... Which team have you been more impressed by from a a tactical point of view or are there no criteria for that? What do do you make of them?
3: I I I think Italy have been really well organised. I've really enjoyed watching them. I think throughout his time with England, Southgate and his assistants, I think it's clear that his assistants really have a huge impact on decision-making. I think generally England have good game plans from the start. When I worry about them is when the opposition change. I think against Colombia at the last World Cup, Croatia at the last World Cup, the opposition changed things and Southgate didn't really react. So I was interested to see what would happen when England went behind against Denmark. I think actually that prompted probably England's best spread of the tournament, you could say. They created two very presentable chances. It wasn't really a tactical thing. It was just you know about, about uh, reacting and uh, yeah, just carrying on uh, some level of momentum. But yeah, I, I think Italy are better organised. I don't think I don't think Italy have shown much tactical flexibility, though, have they? I haven't? Off the top of my head, I don't think they've really changed system. So that's that's one area where, I, again, would slightly be positive about England, because uh, if this was certain other teams in the tournament where there's a potential for them to completely radically change their approach, then I,
7: I worry about England. That's interesting what you said James a minute ago about them watching all of England's games. Is that the coaching staff or the or the squad as well? Because if it's the coaching staff, you'd think they should have done that before or as the tournament's going on. If it's the playing staff, it's like you don't want to show players like six games. That's not going to help. No. no, they've got like a
2: match analyst team of three guys who just... who break everything down and then cut it up for Mancini to show uh, the players, which
5: with ITV commentary on it. (laughs) Um,
2: Well, of course, you know, Mancini is is apparently a good friend of Robbie Savage, isn't he? But Sav is not co-commentating. So Mm. um, I don't know what he makes of of, of the current lineup with ITV, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll see good
6: chance for Robbie Savage to atone uh, to the people of Italy for having once dismissively thrown Paolo Maldini's shirt on the floor <laughs> mid interview uh, in the build up to a, a qualifier back in the early noughties.
3: Mm. I think he had um, he had Vieira a couple of times, didn't he? He had him at Man City briefly. Did he have him at Inter as well? Must have done.
2: Yeah, he did.
3: Yeah. yeah. I don't know where I'm going with this. I was going to say maybe he'll be watching ITV, but he definitely won't, will really. he? He'll be uh, he'll be at Beyond. the game watching for himself. <laughs> <laughs>
5: yeah. How much of a factor is experience the fact that this is England's first ever final at the Euros? First final anywhere since 1966. It's Italy's second Euro final in the last three tournaments. It's their 10th major tournament final overall. Uh, they won this in 68, but only got to the final, of course, on a coin toss. How, how much of a factor is it the fact that they've been there and bought the monogram shirt or whatever?
2: Well, I think it matters uh, in the coaching staff. Uh, with with Mancini, uh, who I, 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 he's just got that winning DNA. Um, you know, as you know, James. Aside from his brief spell at Leicester, um, yeah, he he wasn't part of a Leicester fairy tale Premier League win. Um, he was only there for a short while. But everywhere else, he's played at teams, not Juventus, not Milan, not Inter. And he's won Samp first and only league title in their history, and lots of cups. Lazio first league title since the seventies. Into as a coach. First league title in eighteen years, albeit you know coming off the back of the Calciopoli scandal. Man City first league title in more than forty years. So he's got something about him which I think allows him to set the tone on occasions like this. Um, and then I actually don't think experience is is too great in Italy's favour compared with England, because you know aside from Chiellini and Bonucci, you've got you know, 700 caps between them. Um the, the, the rest of these players, okay, Jorginho's played in a Champions League final and won. Verratti's mm-hmm. played in a Champions League final and lost. The mm-hmm. rest of this team is either young or they're in their late 20s and haven't really played major tournament football as starters before. Uh In Immobile's case, in Insigne's case, Barella's obviously, this is his first... Senior major tournament. Um, it would have been the same with Spinatola. It's the same with Emerson. Um, so, in that respect, I think they're
3: they're pretty matched in in that sense. I don't know whether experience will be important in the final, but I gather it has been quite important in England getting to the final because there's obviously a lot of players who were involved three years ago with the World Cup, and I think there was an acknowledgement in the squad at the end of that tournament, that England were just exhausted by the Croatia game. And I think there was a real intention. It's easy to say that now England have got through, but I think there was a a belief that in the group stage, England needed to play in kind of second gear and play within themselves. And I think in in the knockout stages, we've seen a bit more intensity and a bit more energy. And I think the Denmark game in particular was an example of England would just look fresher. They did look fitter. Um, Whether that will be a factor here, I don't know. Obviously, there's a day less rest. I think when you look historically at the last 20 or 30 uh, World Cup finals, Copa America finals, European Championships finals, it's actually 50-50 in terms of a day less rest doesn't actually make any difference. Credit to Omar Chowdhury for that uh, research. Um, But certainly, uh, looking at uh, England the last few games, I think they do look quite fresh. And I think Mm. there's... There's an argument England might have a physical edge. I think in Verratti and Georgina brilliant footballers, definitely the best two midfielders on show. But I think if you get running past them, they can be vulnerable. Um, And Bonucci and Chiellini, again, brilliant defenders, very wily defenders. But in certain situations, I think they can be exposed. I think especially when Emerson goes forward, Chiellini has to cover so much space on the outside. Um, If I'm Saka and I have opportunities to get Chiellini dragged out towards the touchline, I think I'd be quite... Quite interesting, though, those possibilities.
1: I
6: think they're two teams with quite similar dynamics. And I think that's one of the things that makes this such a, a fascinating game in that you know, this sort of England team w- was born out of the rubble of what happened at Euro 2016 and then the short lived Sam Allardyce era. And that's when Gareth Southgate came in and started putting things in place. This Italy team was born out of the rubble of failing to qualify for the last World Cup. And, you know, that they've both been on upward trajectories over the last few years with managers who've been in place for a similar level of time. And they've both got quite a lot of young players. They're both teams who have... I mean, you know, we know that Italy've been on this fantastic run, you know, 33 games unbeaten, but it feels like they're two teams that are sort of, you know, finding their identities at roughly the same time. Italy probably slightly ahead of England in that respect. Um, but it feels like these are two teams with a sort of similar kind of maturity. So, hmm. although Italy do have some of that big tournament know-how in in the likes of Chiellini and and, and Bonucci, I think overall that they're, they're both yeah, I think I think they're quite well balanced, quite well matched.
5: And I think, I mean, it's a very nice point you make, Tom. Whatever happens, and people may not feel this way come the finalists on Sunday night, but whatever happens, it will have been a really successful tournament for, for both teams. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about how much talk there's been about Euro 96, and we, we all recognise the huge impact that, say, Italia 90 had on the English game as well. And those were both tournaments that saw England ending their campaign in heartbreak. But looking back, they, they were tremendously... I don't know, treasured parts of English football folklore, if you like. And I, I think whatever happens Sunday, this will be two for, for, for England and, and probably for, for Italy, although I don't think there's quite as much a feeling of a, as I say, of a once in a lifetime opportunity. Duncan.
7: Yeah, just to back up what Tom was saying about the similarities in approach, I think both these teams, you see this in international football a bit where it, because it's not as well rehearsed and trained as club football, that things that maybe go out of fashion a little bit in club football, like just running with the ball become a bit more important in international games and obviously Chiesa has been really good at that. Um, Sterling's already completed 18 dribbles in this tournament which is more than any England player in Euros history in a single tournament and you know Sterling doesn't really do that that much at City and it's almost like he's been doing it more and more The the longer he's away from Pep this summer the more he's just <laughs> like I'm just gonna pick the ball up and run and he's good at it and I think you know I wouldn't be surprised to see a lot of the chances that are created in this game coming from you know from players you know doing good old-fashioned one, not it's only one way to beat them get around the back take your man mm-hmm. on etc
3: I agree with you James about the the situation in the game, I almost. I know it sounds crazy because this is the final. It's probably the biggest game they've played in their careers for for all the England players. But I also sense, to certainly said the pressure's off because, like you say, even if they lose, they do go out heroes. I really think that Germany game, if England had lost that, I think there would have been such a public backlash against Southgate, against the players, about losing to Germany, about not getting past the second round. But uh, I feel after that win and obviously the, the two subsequent wins, It does seem to be quite a good feeling in the England side. I think both in terms of physical and psychological factors, England are quite well set. Uh, And tactically as well. I think it's just a question of whether that overcomes the fact. Italy probably are technically better. Certainly in midfield, you could argue in certain positions and attack. But uh, I'm not sure sure whether England will win. I think it's really quite in the balance. But I think there's so many factors that have fallen quite nicely into England's favour.
7: And I'm not sure they will get a better opportunity than this. I mean, it feels pretty likely that it could go to extra time and and penalties even. And in which case, you know, again, there's similarities between Italy and England, where they both had penalty heartache in the past. Um, but then, you know, England have won their last two penalty shootouts, so even that has has slightly been fixed in the Southgate era. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see the full 120, as mm. experts say.
5: Right. Well, it's, it happens so many so many times already in this, this tournament. You know what? There's so many X factors. There's so many divergent pathways that could open up once this game gets underway. To clock. Let's, let's just wait and see. James, you're going to dash off and do things. So looking forward to reading the results of those on theathletic.com. But the rest of us are going to stick around. Hopefully that includes you, listener, as we have a little look back on what has been Euro 2020.
0: So, boys, we're close to winning the Euros on home soil. Now, I'm not sure if you know this, but we've actually been in a similar scenario before. Uh, no gaffing no, doesn't ring any bells. <laughs> what, Euro 96? The penalty shootout? No, I think anyone taking a penalty is brave. Oh, mm, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Sir Gareth has a chance to write himself a new legacy as England take on Italy in the final of Euro 2020. And with Paddy Power, you can get a free bet if one leg of your four plus fold bet builder lets you down. Paddy Power! Pre match only, max free bet £10 excludes enhanced match odds. Min 1 to 5 per leg on an exclusive TCC
1: supply, 18 plus you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to that own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to the Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash totally. That's ind double slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at indeed.com. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts.
5: Boy, that feels like another lifetime. Andrea Bocelli in Rome, that cute little car, bringing the ball onto the pitch. Uh, you, hey, let's have a little look back on uh, what would have been the kind of most memorable bits of this past four weeks of tournament. I remember actually being sat here with you, uh, Michael, certainly uh, before it all got underway, saying, what's it going to be the Euros of? And, 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 and Tom, or we were thinking about, I think, the travel and how much influence that was going to have. I mean, what would you say it has turned out to be a tournament?
6: About it's been a tournament of great football, um, high drama, lots of goals. It's currently averaging 2.8 goals per game, uh, which is the highest goals per game ratio in a European Championship or World Cup since the 1982 World Cup in Spain. So it's been the highest scoring tournament of my lifetime. Um, and yeah, just sort of like looking back over the matches, I mean, the, you know, things that happened in the group phase feel like they happened months ago those early matches people getting excited about the Netherlands things like that I feel like they belong almost to a different tournament and I think if you you look through the the knockout matches I don't think there's been a bad game genuinely there's either been you know excellent quality there's been some kind of drama or there's been some kind of shock we've had some all-time great matches Mm -hmm. high scoring We've had a you know a handful of penalty shootouts. We've had extra time drama. It's had everything. I mean, there is that the slight caveat that it hasn't always been played in in full stadiums for you know the reasons that we obviously know, and that you know that the, the, there is a you know there are some accusations that it, it's unfairly favoured the teams that have been able to play at home. But then that was always going to be the case, given the very unique format of the tournament. Um, but you know, given this the sense that you know that there were some fears about how COVID would affect things before the tournament began. You think about, you know, there were a couple of cases in the Spain camp and Mm. various other teams. Actually, looking back now, two days out from the final, I think it's been a spectacular success.
7: Yeah. I think, and we've mentioned this before during the tournament, but obviously it was the first tournament spread over many countries and many cities. And we wondered how that would feel and particularly with COVID and obviously with different stadiums having different regulations. And... And yeah, it did feel like some stadiums were better than others for the tournament, like Copenhagen was good, um, Munich was good, obviously the Se- Seville wasn't. Wembley kind of got better as the tournament went on, magically as more people were allowed in, I guess. Um, Hampden Park was had a kind of bleak northern... Madness to it with like Schick's long-range goal, and then that kind of slugfest between Ukraine and Sweden, which came after the England Germany game, which possibly to go back to Tom's point was maybe the the one knockout game that wasn't an all-time classic. But even that, in extra time, descended into sort of super aggressive tackling, and then a late late winner. So yeah, I mean it's been all tournaments feel like they're long, um, and. And everyone always forgets each time not to make too many judgments after the first or second group games because, you know, there's a lot of narrative yet to come. But this one somehow feels even longer than normal, I think. Because really? Of, yeah, because there was such drama at the start with like Christian Eriksen and then, right. you know, and then obviously the, how long it's been. And it's even been stretched out a little bit. I don't remember previous ones where there were so many gaps between sort of the group stage and the last 16 and things like that. So, yeah, it has, has been quite epic, but all the better for it, really.
5: Well, a lot of the game's been epic. We've had almost a record number of extra time matches. Uh, We've had a a massively so a record of own goals. Michael, we were positing the other day, or I think Duncan was suggesting that this might be because of the way that teams attack now, getting to the byline and then cutting back in and that this naturally favours own goals from defenders. Is that why you think we've had this extraordinary number?
3: maybe i think it's probably the majority of that is coincidence personally i'm not sure there's an overwhelming reason um yeah personally i don't read too much into that can we please isolate the maybe from the
6: start of michael's answer there it sounded <laughs> a lot like liam gallagher singing forever. we might just say in charlie we might get use out of that at some point in the future nice
5: uh, Michael, no doubt for your next book you will be doing a chapter on Euro 2020 what at the moment do you think it's going to be about?
3: I'm not sure there's been overwhelming themes to me I don't think I actually think it's been a particularly tactical tournament I don't, I, there's been relatively few games where I think the managerial decisions have have played a part and maybe this is linked to the fact that it's been a good tournament, I think it's been about good football good football players um, and just relatively open games Tom gave the, the goals per game stats earlier I think that's in keeping with with how it's felt. And I just say, I mean, I've enjoyed it so much because there's been fans back in. And I must be honest, that you know, majority of last season, I just found some of those games so bleak. And even though the attendances at some of these have been 10%, I mean, some of the Baku games were, were laughable. But now it's been ramped up and Wembley's been two-thirds full. I mean, I've been to three, four games at Wembley and it's been, just to see people back at football, it's been absolutely fantastic. And I think it's had... It's had such a big impact on the way the games are played. The big moments just feel more meaningful. And I think, uh, personally, speaking, some people are talking about it as one of the best Euros ever. I'm not sure i go that far, but I think after such a bleak season, right. it's, it's been fantastic. So I, I've just enjoyed it. Couldn't have enjoyed it anymore. It's been brilliant. Do you think that
5: atmosphere that you're talking about of the fans in the same, do you think that that has influenced the players and the way that they have been so... Open in their in, in their approach to the matches.
3: Yeah, I think it's been a factor. There's probably so many small ways it's been a factor. But even just, for example, I think it's harder to play out from defence in a in a full stadium. Communication is more difficult. You get the oh, you get a little bit of nerves. So there's more high turnovers, I would think. Just small little things like that. I do think it has affected. Uh, even you could even say the there were a lot of missed penalties. Is it hard to score penalties in? When, you, when you're back in front of fans, having not played in front of fans for a year, I don't know, just really small factors like that. I think it's, it's affected in lots of different ways, but the overall net, uh, net benefit has definitely been positive.
7: I was at the England-Croatia game and in the first half um, Pickford and John stones were arguing about the length of goal kicks and distribution, but because of the crowd noise, they couldn't hear each other. so John stones got to run back to sort of you know and, and that bears that out essentially that you know I think play we, we underestimate how much players got used to playing behind closed doors essentially um, and maybe it has gone back to a bit of a you know a bit of a retro kind of you know get out there and, and see what you can do and we'll we'll see what the result is at the end of the game sort of approach.
5: I can complete. I imagine if we had to perform to like a big audience again, how how that would affect us. I mean, with you, listener, it's it's nice and intimate. But sorry, Tom.
6: (laughs) No, and there there have been, you know, really clear examples of teams being inspired by uh, playing at home. You think about Hungary taking a point off. France in the group phase uh, and of course you know, Budapest was the only country that staged games at full capacity and you really sense the benefit of that. The final Denmark group game in Copenhagen where they just blast Russia out of the water um, and then managed to, to qualify for the next phase. England most obviously, um, all of their home matches and, and I think that's you know that was always going to be a feature of this tournament, the fact that you had so many teams playing at home um, and yeah, I, I think it has it has been an advantage for those teams. And, you know, certainly the fact that England have played six of their seven matches uh, at home uh, has clearly benefited them. And I think that's something that, you know, some other uh, countries who have exited the tournament earlier than they would have wanted to. I was thinking more about the big guns, but uh, sure. Um, uh, Perhaps, you know, looking at that as as
7: something that is slightly regrettable. Mm. Well, all four semi-finalists played all of their group games at home, which I think was quite, quite telling, so...
5: Yeah, what's What was your match of the tournament, Michael, so far?
3: Um, I was at Wembley for Italy, Spain in the semi, the first semi. And for 80 minutes, I thought that was just brilliant. It was just fantastic right. football, real good on a technical level. Slightly ruined by the last 10 minutes of, of normal time. and extra. T- I think extra time is so often flat, boring. Um, but yeah, I'd probably still go for that. There's been some great games, but I feel like that'll probably be the best game of the tournament on a technical level so I'd go for
4: that one okay
5: Tom
6: uh, I mean France-Switzerland is is the one that, that jumps out and the fact that it came on the same day as Spain-Croatia yeah. I mean one surely one of the greatest days in the history no. of, of yeah, international absolutely. tournament football um, obviously France-Switzerland France go behind and then go 3-1 up and look like they have the game in the bag Switzerland peg them back go for extra time and then penalty shootout um, and also just uh, on the sort of the the quality angle. I thought Belgium, Italy, was an absolute treat. The first half, in particular, two fantastic Italy goals from Barella and Insigne, and then Lukaku pulling one back with a penalty just before half time. Uh, that that's up there, sort of quality wise, if if perhaps not drama
0: wise.
3: <laughs>
7: Yeah, the first hour of that game was great. And then it was, if you like gamesmanship, it was the best half an hour of the tournament from, from Italy. But yeah, I think for me, like Tom said, the Magic Monday, Manic Monday, Goal mm. Monday, whatever you want to call it 14 goals. That's only, <laughs> yeah, I call it Goal Monday. That's what I do. Um, there were 14 goals. There's only seven fewer than the entire group stage in 1992, a year in 92. And obviously, yeah, there were only two groups that, in those days, but it's still pretty impressive.
5: It was amazing. So, yeah, Spain 5-3 over Croatia and then that 3-3 between Switzerland and France. And the world champions going out on penalties, which, you know, nobody likes to see. What what about your goal of the tournament? Is there one that can challenge Patrick Schick? What have you got?
7: I'd go for the De Bruyne goal against Denmark, which Mm. was lashed home with his wrong foot, which is good. But also the work from Lukaku on the on the right flank which didn't involve pace or power which must have (laughs) um confused some commentators but uh you know really good skill and and works it across or belgium work it across and then yeah lashed home it was a real kind of and also again it goes back to that thing the stadium was full of people and everyone ooed or booed or cheered and you know that was like wow yeah this is football this is Mm. what it's about
6: i've got a, a short list of alternatives to the the shit goal which is you know obviously the goal of the tournament um Kasper Dahlberg against Czech Republic, mainly for that gorgeous outside-of-the-foot cross from Joachim Mera out on the left-hand side. Paul Pogba against Switzerland, that curler uh, into the top-right corner. Andres Christensen... Uh, for Denmark against mm. Russia in that game that I mentioned in Copenhagen um, when you had the whole sort of stadium you know this, this great sense of sort of you know communion um, and Cristiano Ronaldo against Germany that brilliant mm. counterattack that he starts in his own six-yard box and then concludes in the opposition six-yard box or thereabouts
5: I, I made a little list as well do you want to hear them?
3: Yeah
6: Alright so Karim Benzema
5: against Switzerland you remember that extraordinary the pass was a little bit behind him and it kind of drags it forward
1: Avec Kylian Mbappé qui peut servir Karim Benzema. Ooh. Ooh. Ça ressemble au miracle. C'est un miracle français
7: pour l'instant. It's like a good Bergkamp.
5: Was it okay? Chiesa's against Austria was, was brilliant. Insigne's against Belgium. Damsgaard's free kick against England. Oh, Jorginho's penalty in the shootout. That was amazing. Stefan Leiner, a goal that I completely forgot about. That that kind of leaping volley thing. Uh, oh, and Yamalenko. Which one was
6: the Stefan Leiner one? Who, so Leiner, he basically, the
5: ball one. comes across and he leaps up and then kind of side-foots it in mid-air. Uh, this is Austria against North Macedonia.
3: Uh, uh, yes, yeah. I think I remember that one.
5: Right. Michael? Uh,
3: no, just the shit one. I know it's the obvious one, but I've become slightly like immune to halfway line goals because <laughs> it feels like you see them every week on Twitter, but... This was like a new type of yeah. halfway line goal.
4: Now the break might be on for Patrick Schick and look what he's trying to do. Schick, oh! Wow. Can you believe wow. what we've just seen?
3: It was brilliant. Yeah, it was just brilliant. I, I kind it's of feared that world. because it happened so early on, people would kind of get bored of the concept of it and start talking about other goals. But yeah, that was, I was absolutely amazed when that went in. So that yeah. by quite a long way for me.
5: By, well, literally by quite a long way actually.
3: Similarities with Goal of the Season
6: 1996-97, which was, of course, won by David Beckham's right. lob against Wimbledon, which was scored on the season's opening day. So it, if you are going to try and win a Goal of the Season slash Goal of the Tournament competition, it right. can be done early on, provided the goal is scored from the halfway
7: line. Brilliant. Brilliant. And both goals ended with keepers caught up in nets as well. So Both Scotland yeah. keepers yeah. as well. Yeah, Yeah.
5: Spooky. All right. And um, any other of the tournaments you want? Do you want a player of the tournament?
7: I think it's really hard to to say a player of the tournament because do you go for someone who is integral to maybe the team that wins it that may not right. be... Or do you do someone that had a couple of brilliant performances like Paul Pogba, but then his team didn't get as far as they should have. So, mm. yeah, I always I think golden boot works because it's like, yeah, even if you get loads of goals against Panama, you still scored the most goals in a tournament. So but,
5: if you were going to make a DVD of this who would you put on the cover
7: if it was a dvd probably someone from euro 2004 but um i don't know
4: <laughs>
5: <laughs> no further questions Your Honor. all right then well let's uh, let's leave that there eh uh, it's been a fabulous tournament that i think we're all agreed on even if Duncan thinks it maybe went on a little bit long and it's still got a bit to go uh, and uh, so is the show actually because if you can bear it listener uh, very shortly we'll do an extremely quick on this day on a pretty momentous bit of footballing occurrence uh, first though a bit of odds from Paddy Power over to you producer Ben
1: Thank you very much, Jimbo. I'm on the line with Carl Moynihan. He's from Paddy Power, which is handy because I'm after a Paddy Power bet builder, Carl. I am after an England win, a Harry Kane goal, a Raheem Sterling assist, and a Giorgio Chiellini yellow card. What do I get, Carl? Stacking all of that together, but how about we start off with the overall odds here?
4: Well, Ben, fasten your seatbelt as the Italian job looks well and truly on with England and Italy locking horns at Wembley this Sunday. England are the fabs at 13-8 to eight to win within 90 minutes while Mancini's Azzurri are a 2-1 to one shot. Check out paddypower.com, remember, for enhanced prices on the final. Now, Ben, we start the most important bet builder of your life with an England win at 13-8. to eight. There are plenty of reasons why Gareth Southgate's men are the favourites. We'll start off with home advantage. Wembley very much so a fortress for England in this term with five wins, a draw and the concession of just the one goal, whilst Italy have failed to win in 90 minutes in their two trips to London in this tournament. But they did eventually get past the Austrians in extra time and needed pens to get past the Spanish. Now, add pace and being put under pressure to the list of things the Italians do not like to deal with. And it's clear England have the weaponry to fire themselves to glory. Now, the second leg of the bet builder, Ben, is Kane to score any time at nine to five. Premier League's top marksman has been a beast in the knockout stages with four in his last three and looks like a shrewd selection as we add more meat to this bet builder pie. We then go to Raheem Sterling to assist at five to one. The Man City attacker ran the Danes into the ground and was yet again a key figure in getting England over the line and into their first final since 1966. The final part of the bet builder is a booking for Giorgio Chiellini at 11-4. 36-year-old veteran is yet to be booked so far in this tournament but we'll leave it all on the line in pursuit of glory. The pace England have in their attack is sure to cause problems for an ageing Italian defence so a yellow card for Big Giorgio looks a shrewd bet. And of course, that brings our bet builder, Ben, to a whopping 75 to 1. Is football coming home? Well, it seems to be on route and could be knocking on the door momentarily.
0: The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Find a bookie who loves you right back as much as Gareth loves right backs. Place a four-plus-fold four bet builder on any football match and get money back as a free bet if one leg lets you down. Check paddypower.com for more details. £10 max free bet. T and C supply. 80 This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
1: We're sponsored for this episode of The Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage Shopify is there to help you grow from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system wherever and whatever you're selling Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to the Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Early Sunday morning
5: UK time, there's Brazil-Argentina in the Copa America final meantime today as we record it's the 9th of July and on this day in 2006 Italy won the World Cup in Berlin beating France on penalties after a, a 1-1 draw in regulation time and then after 120 but the bit that we were going to look back on briefly now was that that game also marked Zidane's, Zinedine Zidane's last act as a footballer I mean a pretty Extraordinary finale it was to his extraordinary career. I mean, we've all known the incident. The, the remarkable thing, I think, when you look back on it, Tom, is that it doesn't look like he lost his temper. It looks like he knew exactly what he was doing. And that's just how he wanted to sign off.
6: Yeah, I mean, I just remember the confusion. I watched this on um, a big screen in an Italian restaurant, confusingly, uh, in that Covent Garden. And I remember they didn't show what had happened for a while. You knew that something had happened and, the, you know, the referee went over to speak to the Fourth official, and there was a bit of back and forth. And then you saw the image, that heart-stopping image of Zidane planting his his head into... Matarazzi's chest um and and being sent off. And I remember thinking, Oh, it must have been something horrific, you know, to to have you know, to have thrown Zidane off off his game to that extent that he you know he do something so brutal, and then we found out that had just said something uh, a bit crude about his sister. And as we just heard, the French commentary was just disbelief, like, "No, why have you done this? No, please don't end your career in this way." And you know, I you know Zidane was one of my favourite footballers. I was sort of rooting for France in that final, and I I still think it's a, it's a pity that his career ended in that fashion with such a sort of senseless, needless. You know, brutal act. And also, if you're going to headbutt someone in your last act on a football pitch, like headbutt
7: his face, like headbutt him <laughs> properly.
6: You Who know, headbutt someone in the like, chest?
7: Um So yeah, uh, unfortunately. Like the Dion Dublin on Robbie Savage, that was a bit more effective, but. At least Materazzi was honest about what he said because remember Matthew Simmons when he got. It's uh, always Matthew Simmons for, f- for you, Duncan. I know, but like the fact he, he claimed he said, "Off you go, cancel now." It's an early bath for you. It's just <laughs> how did he think anyone would think that's that's what made another French icon lose the plot?
6: Yeah, I mean Matthew Simmons, Wayne Hennessey. There is actually a bit of a theme developing with people related to Crystal Palace offering uh, unconvincing excuses for things.
5: Right, indeed so. It was also an incident that was kind of the, the dawn of VAR, a kind of proto-VAR, and I, I was quite on board with the notion of video assisted, assistant referees because of that incident, because I thought, well, yeah, And now I know
7: better. Well, that, wasn't that, that was the thing, wasn't it, that no one actually saw it, the referee, but the fourth official saw a replay of it mm. um, and said it was quite bad, he probably needs to go. There
5: is a there is a line of thought that it wasn't Materazzi's comment that actually provokes it. And it's the fact that Buffon had produced this outstanding save on on a header of his uh, not long before, which had kind of kiboshed his notions of what his final game was going to involve, him scoring the winning goal in the World Cup final. And he was just so frustrated by the fact that Buffon was excellent that he hit another Italian, as you know as you do. Michael?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think Zidane's probably the biggest show pony that's ever played the game. <laughs> Massive attention seeker, and I mean, he, he he played the game. He played the game like it was his testimonial. He, he got a penalty in a World Cup final and did a penenka. He yeah. just about went in, but he had to appeal to the he had to appeal to the linesman to to give it. I mean, he was obsessed with being the centre of attention. That was his whole career. I mean, he got so many red cards over the course of his career which was other def- otherwise kind of defined by unnecessary pieces of skill that didn't go anywhere. And he would have loved to have, you know, gone out with that winner being the, the main goal, but he couldn't. And I think he just wanted to walk out, you know, like you say, he didn't seem to have any regrets. He, he was just
7: keen to leave almost on his own terms, wasn't he? It was a bizarre performance. You see all those little videos on Twitter of um, Zidane's skills, you know, two minutes of Zidane's skills. And, most of them are in the middle of the pitch and then go to someone else. It's like, well, yeah.
5: I mean, you know, buy Leverkusen and that.
7: Yeah, but we've talked about that before I got abused for saying I didn't even think that was a... It was a good volley with the wrong foot, but it was not one of the all-time European Cup That's girls. Exactly it absolutely was
4: one, one of
6: the all-time. Left, right and centre <laughs> I, mean, I mean, Zidane was the last of a dying breed, wasn't he? He was the last of an age of playmakers who spent a lot of time... Decorating the play as much as they actually influenced it, but I mean, he, you know, he he did, you know, use his skills for good as well as evil know, preening <laughs> self-regard, and it only takes a couple of minutes on YouTube to confirm that.
3: I got to say, I, I, as you might as you might have deduced, I've got very <laughs> little time for Zidane as a player, but that volley against Leverkusen was, was, was I, I, that was a brilliant goal. Like, yeah. I, I'm amazed you can criticise, be that' mean that. I, I can't get over how good that is, that dropping ball. and Not even the okay, fact that well, it's with his wrong foot, just the dip on the strike.
7: It's, it, that was an incredible moment. All right, it's so at the same end of, as Patrick Schick's goal uh, in this <laughs> Euro. So how are we to say that it's not, it's not actually the, the specific air quality around that net that just encourages really unusual <laughs> finishes? We can't say that. So. No.
5: Tom, we've heard two of the most controversial opinions I think this <laughs> podcast has ever featured. Uh, here, would you like to just finish off then with your most controversial opinion about football?
6: Oh man, there are so many. The first one that comes to mind, like, well, t- talk, talking about goals that like that you know people don't rate, I've never rated the Ronaldinho toe poke against what? Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. I just Why think not? it's ugly. It, 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 shuffle, shuffle, toe poke? No. no that is You're Brazilian. Do better. Use the outside of your foot. Do some skills. No. That's, that's the hill I'll die on.
3: No. I, bet if I done feel I on much
6: I feel on he... much, fir, much firmer ground saying that than than dissing the greatest goal ever scored in a European Cup final no. and one of the greatest footballers of all time.
7: No, because when when Ardini did that I was like, well, how's he even scored there? He didn't even there was no mm. backlift. It just went in the net even, you know. Then
6: you saw the replay It was like, oh, he's, it was a topo.
7: And then and the other one, oh, man, man scores volley in game of football. Yes, yeah, stop the press. <laughs> <laughs>
5: It's a game of opinions, listener, at the end of the day. You know, who's to say who's right and who's wrong? But there you go. We'll have another batch of hot takes. Some right, some wrong. Come Sunday night. Available for your pleasure on Monday. But for now, that's it for this edition of Totally at the Euros. Many thanks to Duncan Alexander, to Tom Williams, Michael Cox and to James Formcastle earlier on and of course producer Charlie and you, listener. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, Do hope you enjoy the game wherever you're watching it.
1: And for now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Keep up to date with everything Totally at The Totally Show on Twitter and find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash Totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power.
4: The Athletic.